Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, you it's Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man view of the changing world, the changing times And the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it as almost always the case And getting to be, uh, going to become a rarity, I guess, very soon uh, During my 50 mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas As I look forward to January and spending most of my days in an actual studio uh, In my house, rather than in a car doing speeds of 50, 60, 70, and I'll admit it, sometimes 80 miles an hour in the mobile studio, which is my Jetta Diesel TDI. Um, today's show is going to be on seven pieces of uh, common wisdom for finance that are actually very bad pieces of advice, at least in my opinion. And I know I'll get a lot of differing opinions today, but I'm going to tell you why I think the way I do, and just maybe it'll help you think better about how to manage your finances and how not to just swallow a pill every time it's passed in your direction. And hopefully that'll help you have a better life financially, career-wise, economically, debt-wise, you name it, and just living quality and life quality-wise, especially. Especially as you get a bit older. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, too. Um, Before that, let's knock out our housekeeping. First part of the housekeeping, as always, is our sponsors of the day. All of our sponsors can be viewed on our website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, in the right-hand margin. They are personal endorsements by me, not just people that showed up with a check. They have to go through an approval process. It's quite involved. And uh, basically, if my listener uh, ad council, if I have two members on that council that say, we don't want this guy, he's out, even if I want him. Uh, So you know their quality. First one is Western Botanicals, quality supplements and herbals. Uh, All the herbal products from Western Botanicals are either organic or wild-crafted. So you know you're getting quality. And you're getting a huge selection. Uh, I really recommend you check out their website and check out some of the things that they have to offer. The next sponsor of the day is Ready-Made Resources. Uh, everything that you need as a prepper you can find at Ready-Made Resources, kind of your one-stop shop for prepper stuff. Uh, so check out Ready-Made Resources. And in particular, I suggest you download their solar catalog. I think you'll get a tremendous education uh, just by browsing uh, that downloadable catalog on solar systems and wind systems as well is actually part of that. Uh, it's amazing what you can learn from that catalog, so I suggest you check that out. Uh, next, make sure you're part of our forum. I'll leave it at that, but if you get in our forum, hey, you're going to make connections, relationships, and you'll learn a lot. I've said this before. I think there's a Ph.D. for free in prepping and self-sufficiency, waiting for anybody that will take the time to really read and go through the forum. Uh, next, the gear shop, uh, T-shirts, uh, Hats, you name it. We got cool stuff branded with TSP. Check it out. I think you'll like it. You'll find the Gear Shop emblem on the survivalpodcast.com as well. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, YouTube subscribers are going to get another chance to win something today in just a second. Uh, but I'm really pushing hard to get to two to 3,000 YouTube subscribers uh, in the next month because I have some things I really want to roll out heavy next year with YouTube. And uh, I'm pushing that. So, if you want to play the contests that are going to happen between now and the end of the year, I suggest you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, on that note, if you want to support the show, if you think it's worth more than $0.10 cents an episode, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and over $150 worth of free stuff on day one. And the cost, $5 a month or $50 a year. It's a pretty badass deal that I put together for people that were going to support the show. Uh, Remember, in the early days, people wanted to give me donations. I turned down every every single offer of a donation. I decided if I was going to put monetization into the show, that I would deliver more than I took always, that I would follow that thing. That's what the MSB is all about. Um, last, contest. Uh, MSB, you get all kinds of stuff. You get exclusive videos only for members. You get discounts from a ton of vendors. You get a ton of free PDF ebooks that uh, add up to about 60 bucks alone. Uh, it's just, you get a free lifetime membership to Safe Castle Royals Discount Club. Uh, it's, it's pretty badass, and I'm going to give away two today. 
to it. I'm going to make sure it's fair because I always get, it's not fair. I don't listen to later in the day. Okay, so here's how I'm going to do it fair. Number one, it's not fair. Number one will win today. All right? And then number two will be the person, after I get all the things at midnight, I'm going to stop taking uh, entries. And I'll pick a random number based on how many people came in. And then that person will win like a drawing. So, to play, put the word in the subject line of your email to me. YouTube contest. Again, YouTube contest. In the body of the email, your name. Your YouTube user ID, so I can verify you're a subscriber, and your email address. If you win, I will notify you tomorrow that you've won free MSB membership. Again, I'm going to give away a free MSB membership to the first person that does this, and I will give away one randomly drawn from everybody else that enters today. Uh, so two free year-long MSB memberships. Remember, you can only play once per entry. Don't send me six emails, I'll disqualify you. You send the email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. If you use my contact form, it will be deleted. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Subject line, YouTube contest, name, YouTube user ID, and your email address. Number one, and one at random from today. All right, so let's get into the topic of today's show. That took a little longer, but when you give away free stuff, it takes a little bit longer. All right, so what is our first big lie? This is something I got this morning in a comment on the blog, and I think the guy was not necessarily wrong, but did the advice that he's repeating is very misleading, and I don't want to beat up on him because without him we wouldn't have today's show. Uh, his comment led to today's show. I wish I could remember his name. It was like Brian, Doug, Dan, I don't know. Uh, there's so many names out there, I forget them easily, especially when I only have a first name. Um, but I'll put a link to the, the comment section where he made his comment. And basically, his statement was about the show I did earlier where I talked about currency revaluation and the effects of inflation. And he said he thought that my analysis of inflation was mostly correct, uh, but I had said something along the lines of the money is now harder to make, so inflation doesn't really help you. And his overriding statement was that inflation makes debt a good idea. Not necessarily thought you should go deep into debt. Let's be fair to the guy. But overriding, the debt you know, is actually uh, enhanced by inflation. And, and the people with debt uh, have an advantage due to inflation. And that people that save money have a disadvantage due to inflation. I don't disagree, but I disagree with what that fact leads people to take in actions and the way that it's then taken to a next illogical step. The way he explained it to me, you know, and uh, to be fair, again, this is textbook. He's spot on. If you go to a textbook economics uh, explanation here, it just doesn't work for people. And that is that if in 1980 uh, I bought something at for $10,000, I'd be better off carrying debt on it and paying for it with 2008 wages because wages have increased substantially between 1980 and 2008. Nothing per se wrong, but let's dig a little deeper. Because if we don't dig a little deeper, we, we don't learn anything now, do we? So if we dig a little deeper, we say, hmm, what could you have bought for $10,000 in 1980? Well, could have bought a house. Right? Even in 1980, houses weren't $10,000. Not a house you really want to live in, especially between 1980 and 2008. So $10,000 price point, and we're not going to talk about buying a house anyway because, as everybody that listens to the show should know, the one place I'm okay with debt is debt that you know you can pay on, you know you can afford, you know you can pay off early, and on a house. If it's all those things, if you're buying property, if you're buying real estate with debt, it makes sense to me because real estate over long periods of time is an appreciating asset. In other words, it goes up in value. So you can make this debt formula work with real estate. Now, real estate drops and goes up and drops and goes up. But if we look at real estate over 15 years or more, 
we see kind of a constant upward pressure on real estate. Except in like the loony bin parts of the country where you guys pay like way too much for real estate and when it gets crashed, it gets crashed hard and it takes longer to recover. But if we look at where the same people live and if we look at rural property and we look at property outside of the city, which is where I advise people to buy, real estate has a very good track record of stability and increasing value. Almost everything else that we buy with debt in America as consumers, not as business owners, it's not about business debt, it's about personal debt, right? Almost everything that people buy personally other than homes decrease in value. The next biggest expense is a car. It decreases in value. Your car decreases in value the day you drive it off the lot. Plain and simple. Talk about that more in a second, too. So, here's my point. You can get a great big giant timeline like 1980 to 2008, and you can make this whole look. Uh, because wages increased, uh, the, the, and, and, uh, um, the, the inflation worked to the side of the debtor. But anything you bought in 1980, I hope you paid off by 1985, and it was probably worthless by 1985, or worth very little by 1985. So you don't get that type of a timeline to work with, with most consumer crap. You get a timeline of 5 to 10 years, and wages do not increase enough over 5 to 10 years to make this formula work, especially when you're buying depreciating crap. So anything other than real property, this whole concept of debt is good, is is wrong. And I'll tell you what makes it even more wrong. When you fool yourself by using real estate to pay for consumer crap, in other words, that, 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 next, that next home equity loan, you have your, your, fine, your house reappraised, and you pay two hundred, and now it's worth two fifty. So you refinance at two fifty and take fifty thousand out and go spend it on crap. Hey, that's a terrible idea. That's an absolute terrible idea. And it's what people do, and they say, oh, my debt is all real estate debt, but it's not. It's consumer debt. You're just getting a little bit better of terms on interest by carrying it into your home. And it takes your home, which would have been really easy to sell if you had to, and makes it a lot harder for you to sell if you had to. So... Uh, this formula just doesn't work for the average person. It works for multimillionaires. And I'll tell you why else it doesn't work. And this is what I said we would talk a little bit today um, about getting older. This is what I told the guy in my response to his comment on the blog. So let's use your timeline. 1980 was about 20 years ago. So if you're about, you know, your typical well-to-do American man making it really big. It's about 35 years of age. That's really the age where most people, for me, I'm at the end, a little bit older, but uh, for most Americans, that's when they hit it big. 35. A couple kids under the belt, married, wife's off doing her career, she's hitting it big, the guy's hitting it big, kind of finds yourself, you have enough experience, you know, if you started working at 25, you've got 10 years behind you, that's a decade, that's a lot. You know, you bring that to the table wherever you go to that next move, and you make that big money. And that's when the debt comes. When people finally make it, that's when they like, I worked so hard for this, I'm going to buy all kinds of crap. And they go out and they buy two new cars with, you know, $50,000 each car, so they spend $100,000 on cars. They're going to be a depreciating asset. And then they start living that life. And if they're making enough money, they're still saving money into their 401k. They're doing all the little, they're ticking all the boxes a financial advisor says. They're using other people's money and they're leasing their $50,000 cars. So they're, they're only paying a relative $40,000 for them or whatever. And, and they just keep doing this. And then 20 years go by. And things change over 20 years. This is a very different place than it was in 1989. Very different. Think of how different it is if you've been around that long and paying attention that long. How different a world we live in. Careers change. Skill sets that are valued change. And a lot of people, by the time they're 55, become somebody nobody wants. They're too expensive to hire for a good job. Overqualified for most of the things that you'd want to use them for. Too intelligent and too knowledgeable to put in lower level positions that actually still matter. And I'm not saying it happens to everybody, but a big portion of our 55-ish year old people are put out the pasture early. I learned this very harsh lesson as a very young man. 
at about 22 years of age, I was the lead technician out at Lockheed Martin uh, running their, their, their cable installation uh, stuff for contractors. Uh, and I was a contractor myself. I worked for a contracting company to Lockheed. I had um, five people working for me as a lead tech out there. Three of them were older than my father. They were all in their, their middle to upper 50s at the time. And I think one was actually 60. And my thought when I first met these gentlemen, and I, I hate to admit this now, was what losers? Why working for me? I'm a punk kid. I was making $13.50 an hour. I knew they were all making less than that because they didn't get that little bump for being a lead tech. Right? And, and I'm, I, I sat out there with these people, and for like the first couple of weeks, I, I decided that I was a lot smarter and better than these guys. Because, you know, damn it, when I'm in my 50s, I'm not going to be out here working for, doing the same job I am now for less money. That's crazy. And as I got to know these men, I found out that all three of them, all three, had had very successful prior careers. All of them had had, had gained uh, a level in their in their their career path that I was aspiring to become like. All of them had made very very respectable incomes. All of them had rode that income out to kind of an end of life cycle for what they did and what they knew and what their age bracket was. And as companies leaned out and 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 thinned out, had been handed maybe some severance or an early retirement and sent out to pasture in their middle 50s. Uh, too early to retire and too much experience and all three of them too much loyalty to one place to have diverse experience and therefore they ended up working for a punk kid pulling cable and I found a new respect for them and a new understanding for myself. This is what happens when you follow this debt formula. That, oh, it's okay because you'll always make more money. Young man, I say that to you if you're 40 and older than me. Young man, I say that if you're 25 and actually younger than me. Young man, I say that if you're 48 and you're about to become in the minds of America's industry an old man very soon. Young man, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Sooner or later, we all become old relative to the people around us that are calling the shots, and our incomes decline. So just because the average wage earner's income goes up doesn't mean that the individual's wage continuously goes up until they retire. For many people, there is a very sharp drop in the middle 50s to early 60s. And if you're still living the debt life cycle at that point, which is what this philosophy teaches you to do, it really, really hurts. And then like one of these men, he worked for me till 3.30 in the afternoon, 7 to 3.30. He went home. He went to sleep immediately. And he went back to work at 11 o'clock at night and worked from 11 till 7 in the morning and then hauled ass over to be at work by 7.30 uh, and get to work for me because he worked as a night watchman on an 11 to 7 shift. And he worked like that every day because he couldn't pay his bills any other way because nobody would pay him a fair wage based on his prior experience. So if you want to believe that inflation makes that okay, that's what you set yourself up for unless you get out of the system. And that's what I learned to get out of the system. We'll talk about that today too. Here's the next one. This one's all over the radio whenever somebody wants to advertise to you why you should lease a car. Wealthy people lease their cars instead of buy them because they depreciate, so you should too. Let somebody else take the depreciation. Um, this comes from this philosophy. Well, you're always going to have a car payment. You know, By the time you pay a car off, you're going to be buying a new one. If you're always, I just cringe saying this because I'm so against this. If you are always going to have a car payment, if you're always going to drive a new vehicle, if you're always going to trade your vehicle in at three to four years of age or less, then it does make sense to lease a car rather than buy it. There's absolute truth to that. Period. Uh, even with high mileage, you can almost always come up with a deal that will make that work. And that's why you'll notice that most companies lease vehicles. Now, they do it for another reason, too. If you lease a vehicle as a business, it never becomes a business asset, which is very important because now I don't have to depreciate the vehicle. I directly deduct its expense. So if I'm going to have a lease payment on it, then I take 100% of that lease payment and I deduct it because it's like renting office space. I'm renting the vehicle. So from a business standpoint, this really makes sense. For an individual, it makes terrible sense. That said, here's why I believe that. I believe that when you buy a vehicle, you should look at it as a minimum 10-year purchase. 
then you should maintain it perfectly. Something goes wrong, you have it fixed. You should pay it off in three years or less time, even if you finance it for five years to hedge on a low payment in case you ever have to fall back to it. From your very first payment, you should be making additional payments into your car loans, if you finance it at all. And the only reason I'm okay with financing a new vehicle is if you're going to keep it for 10 years. If you're not going to keep a vehicle for 10 years, then you better save up and buy it. I am also a big proponent of buying well-kept used vehicles, but I have found over time that generally speaking, unless you have cash in hand to pay cash on the barrel, you will do just as well with most moderately moderately priced new vehicles. But that vehicle should have its regular scheduled maintenance at all times, not one mile over on your oil usage. It gets to wherever that vehicle is supposed to be serviced, it gets serviced. Change your belts, change your plugs, change everything early. Treat that vehicle perfectly. I'm not saying you don't have some stuff like my vehicle's a mess on the inside. i got books laying around and stuff. But mechanically... Take good care of it. And it's at least a 10-year purchase. Vehicles are better made today than they were in the past. I know people don't believe that, but it's true. You don't see a lot of new vehicles on the side of the road anymore. We used to. So there is a 10-year life cycle at least. And I'm telling you, if you really take good care of a vehicle, there's more than 10 years of a life cycle to a vehicle. So if you're going to own a vehicle for 10 years, leasing is stupid. If you're going to own a vehicle for three years, leasing is, is as smart as it can be under a bad circumstance of only owning a vehicle for three years. I, I just think that's a terrible idea for most individuals because it keeps you in a perpetual debt cycle for the rest of your life. And it's just not necessary. And the other side of this is if we kill the debt on the vehicle at three years and we drive it for another seven and we take those seven years of car payments and invest them in ourselves, when we go to buy a new vehicle, if we want a new vehicle, we can pay cash. We have an ass load of money left over. The formula works. I've run it time and time again. I've run it with a guy that was absolutely convinced, a very, very smart financial guy, absolutely convinced that leasing was smarter. And when I said, but if I owned the vehicle for 10 years, he could never make the money work. could never make it work if I owned it for 10 years. He just said, you're wrong to own it for 10 years. Well, that's opinion, not fact. We'll stick with the math. So this, this wealthy people lease, that's because they're worth millions of dollars. And they set it up in the first place so they don't buy the, the business, uh, the, ve- the vehicle their business does. It becomes a 100% deduction, and it works for them. If you're not that, don't lease, buy. And even if you are that, buy another, you're rich, buy another vehicle. Own one. Keep it at home. And you know the guy I had the big argument with now? Yeah, he now owns two vehicles that are personal vehicles he keeps in the house. And he still leases vehicles through his business. Because even once he realized it, and he started to think about what if something goes wrong, he realized two cars sitting in the garage at home paid for gave them a lot of leverage, especially since they do most of their driving and their business leased vehicles. So that those vehicles that they own have much longer than a 10-year life cycle. And those are future classics sitting in that garage now with low miles on them. That's how that one works out. Next one, going to college is always a good investment. Not if the guy going to college is adult and shouldn't be there and gets through barely passing with a C average, doesn't really learn anything, and then spends the rest of his life working in a field that doesn't have anything to do with his degree, and the guy that hires him like me doesn't even care that he went to college. In fact, the guy works for me for a year, and I'm like, but you never went to college. And he goes, well, I have a degree in marketing from SMU. Very prestigious school. Great degree. Guy couldn't market his way out of a paper bag, but he's a great PHP coder. He's an awesome PHP coder. I'm lucky to have him. He's underpaid for how good he is, but I give him a really great work environment, and he has a commute of about 15 seconds to work, so he's willing to be a little bit underpaid. But you know what? I didn't care about his degree when I hired him. I didn't even look at that part of his resume. I wanted to know, do I have a guy that's agile that can design and develop? Do I have a guy that has enough programming capability to not only build projects, but to oversee them and outsource and make my project rate cheaper? That's why I hired my coder that I have at my main business. Could have cared less about his degree. His degree has done nothing for him. Hilti's the first person to tell you. He's 37. He's finally paid off his last debt based on that degree. 
He spent a fortune on his degree. He's got nothing out of it because it wasn't right for him. He went into marketing because it was the easiest thing that he could do. And he thought it was most applicable to things across the board. He settled for it. He had no passion for it. He went to school because he could. He only had to finance half of his education with loans. The other half was financed from his family, which is fairly well off. But it wasn't right for him. And if he had locked himself in that room ten years earlier, you know, I wouldn't have him working for me right now. Because he'd be a multimillionaire by now. If he had been ready for the advent of the Internet, the real advent of the Internet in the early 90s, late 90s, in that time frame, if he had had that skill set down pat by then, this guy would be worth millions of dollars today. I know what he can do today. I know what he would be able to do by now if he had been on that path. That was his real passion, that and his music. He should have followed his passion. And that's as cut and dry as I can put it. Me? Let's look at me. You know what would have happened to me if I went to college? I would have probably dropped out because I have ADD and uh, things don't hold my attention unless I really care about them. And if I went to college, there would have been these whole group of core courses that I don't give a rat's ass about. And uh, I wouldn't have paid attention to them. But let's say I had popped some riddle in, sat down in my chair, been a good boy, used my high IQ, got my ass through there with good grades, came out with a bachelor's degree in business management, it probably would have ruined my life. Because I would not be the entrepreneur I am today. I would not be 37 years old and running multiple companies. I would not be 37 years old and about to walk away from 90% of everything else I've built to do this full time. You wouldn't have me here to be part of your life every day. I wouldn't be so close to complete freedom. And that's where I am. I won't deny it. I won't hide it. Another four months from now, when we divest ourselves of this house and we move to Arkansas, I'm going to have complete freedom in my life. This gut that some people want to make fun of on me, it'll disappear. <laughs> I won't even have to think about it. When I, when the first thing I do every morning is take a two to three mile walk up the mountain behind my house, the gut will go away. That's why I haven't worried about it for the past year. I see the end. I get freedom because I didn't go to college. I would have gotten slavery if I went to college. I'd probably still be working the career path that I ended up on. I'd probably be making an awful lot of money. I'd probably be deeply in debt. I'd probably be playing golf with a financial advisor that I would believe because I wouldn't know any better. And you know what? In the end, I would have ended up completely and totally miserable. And all the wonderful things that have happened in my life would have never happened. I would have never met my wife. I would have never become the stepfather to a son that I dearly love that absolutely needed me. Because it wasn't my path. It doesn't mean it's not your path. It just means if it's not your path, don't step a single foot on it. And that's not just about college. That's about everything you do in life. When you go to take a step in your life and you go, this is not my path. You look up over your head and you turn a classic phrase, these are not my stars. I'm standing in the wrong place. The stars do not look familiar. When you feel that way, get the hell off that path. That's not where you belong. And for many people, college is that wrong path. You gotta figure out what the hell you're gonna do then. You gotta start working your, you gotta work so much harder than the college student does. You gotta prove yourself so much more. But I'll tell you what, if you can make it work, if it is your path, the other one won't work for you. It won't really work for you. You end up a slave to your own life. You end up living in a very pretty prison. I managed to work myself into that prison even without going to college. But because I kept this entrepreneurial flair, because I kept sticking my nose into everything until I found what I loved, I found a way out of it. I realized the door was sitting there open all along. I just had to walk through it. And that's for you in your life, too, no matter where you're going. But the college myth is a huge one because we have professional athletes selling us on this. We have motivational speakers that get paid to go to high school and go, you can go to college. You need to go to college. You can do it. Right? What about the kid that is an artist with wood that could... Instead of going to college, go apprentice with a custom cabinet maker. And by the time he's 25, be turning out beautiful pieces of walnut that very wealthy people are willing to pay top dollar for because he's an artist. Should he go to college? 
Or should he take his art and go hire some college marketing guy to grow his business for him? And be what he really is. Henry Ford never went to college, and when he was asked about it, he said, i got all these people around me that I pay very good money that went to college for me, so that I can run my business, and they can work in it. There's a lot of wisdom there. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying we have to question it as generic, one-size-fits-all advice. Here's the next one. This one, oh, I, I freaking hate this one. This one is a lie. This one is a destroyer. This one cripples America's future. Once you have a good, solid cash emergency fund of 90 days set up, take all of your savings and put it to your retirement. Now, Jack, how, how, how could you be against responsible living like that? I mean, a 90-day cash emergency fund, one, because most financial advisors that run their mouth about that cash emergency fund never make sure you have it first. They never say, let's, let's put that plan together. How long is it going to take you to save up? They say, okay, we're going to have a, yeah, you got five grand, that's pretty good, right? You know, well, I make $5,000 a month. I have a $60,000 income. I, I need fifteen. Yeah, well, you keep saving that, but let's go ahead and get your, fight for your, your retirement rolling, too. You, the day tomorrow is the day too late, right? You know, you got to do this now. Uh, the time to start investing is today. If you're 25, start today. If you're 35, start today. If you're 15, always start today. The same problem crap, because that's what they get paid on. They don't get paid on your cash emergency fund. So they don't even do that. But let's say that they did. Okay, now, you do have, you're, you have 15 grand, you're a $60,000 a year earner. Um, you have 15 grand that's immediately accessible as cash. And you decide you're going to follow Dave Ramsey's advice and save 15% of your money. And you continue to put 15% of your money into your retirement. What could be wrong with that? Let's say you're 28 years old and you start doing this and... You know, at 35, at that big point in your life, you decide you want to buy that really nice house. You have a ton of money sitting in that retirement account. How much of it can you use to buy a house? Zero. So what do you have to do now? Go into massive debt to buy that house? Should you spend all your money on a house? Not necessarily. But wouldn't it be great if you could go in and buy that house without 5% or 3% down trying to do it through FHA and paying really high interest rates and paying PMI and just go, you know what, I'm going to withdraw 20% and I'm going to go in with a hard 20% equity. I'm not going to worry about my FICO score to get a loan now because I have income and I have 20%. I get the mortgage. I don't care about a credit card. And you have that flexibility. What if you lose your job at 35 What are you going to do? Withdraw your money from your 401k, pay a 10% penalty, pay the accrued income tax and get half of the money you pull out and destroy your retirement future? See how deadly this advice is? See, it's not that you save it for retirement that bothers me. What save it for retirement has come to mean? It means to put the money into tax-deferred status that one must pay a penalty to withdraw from. That makes me sick. Because you're putting all of your wealth away for 59 and a half or later unless you want to pay massive penalties to get your own money. So I would say, beautiful. Put 10% into your retirement and 5% into cash or cash equivalents. Or 7.5, split 7.5, half and half. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with 5% for your retirement and 10% in front of you. It's still your money. You still have it. You can even invest it in the same way. If you have an allotment of funds and you say, I want to put 20% of my money into this group of stocks or this group of mutual funds, you can do the same things you do in the retirement account. You're just going to pay taxes on the gains. But you have access to the money. You can get the money. It's your money today. You don't have to sit and wait for 20 years to wonder if Congress is going to screw around with something and change the rules about the way your money comes out. If you see something about the change, you can preempt it and do something different with the money now. If you have an emergency, you can get the money now. You maintain control of your money. And the ability to liquidate it is control. If you cannot liquidate the funds and convert them into another class of asset, including cash, you do not control them. Somebody else does. And that's the problem with retirement. 401Ks, IRAs, someone else has that control. You do not. 
To get that control back, you have to buy it back, and it's very, very expensive. So do not put all of your money into your 401k, Roth IRA, whatever. Put money in there, yes. They're great vehicles. They belong in your portfolio. You should regularly contribute to them. Even when you've decided the stock market sucks and you don't want in, put it in there and put it into a cash equivalent or a bond fund or diversify and put less in stocks. When the market goes down, do follow the guy's advice and put the money back in the stock. When it's really down, worked out well for people that bailed in June and went back in in like January, February, March of this year. Bailed in June last year, right? Worked out great, you know? Really, really good. On the uh, contributions I've made to my 401k this year, which have been minimal, I've knocked down the percentage quite a bit. Uh, but I think my personal rate of return for 2009 is 38%. That's as good as gold has done. But it's not all there. Most of it now is going into money I can get my hands on. Most of my savings is going liquid. That lets me transition to a full-time business from a full-time business where I was drawing a salary. That's what's going to change. I can't draw a salary anymore. Well, like I was, I always sit there with these big retainers. And any time you leave a business for another line of work, you're going to have the same choice to make. You have to decide what you really want. And if you put all your money into a retirement account, you can't get to it. And things in your life will happen. Murphy's Laws work, including the one where life kicks you in the ass. And all I'm saying is that 90 days may not be enough, so I think you need more. So I think that once you get your 90 days, great. Pat yourself on the head. Put more into deferred status, but don't put it all in there. Don't do it, because you will live to regret it sooner or later. We have a lot of shit storm coming our way for the next 20 years. If you're 40 years old, 20 years old only gets you to 60. You're at the tail end of that before you can get any of that money, and you can't get it all. And you got to wait more years. We know Social Security is going to go bankrupt. I just read an article today. Social Security goes into the red in 2010. Starts losing money, and it never comes back unless they jack up tax rates again. I mean, we got to understand this. We have to understand the way these things work. And if you put all your money into, into retirement, every time life kicks you in the ass, you have to sit there and take it. If you keep some of your funding liquid, you can deal and you can roll with it, and you get the opportunity to act when opportunity comes. When you find that perfect house and you're sitting on a big wad of cash, you can buy it and you can finance the balance at a sensible rate, at a sensible cost. If all your money is in retirement, all you can do is look at it and go, man, I wish I had that money. You have got to keep diversity in your investments. So let's go about diversity. Next slide. Mutual funds diversify your investments and are run by experts. Most mutual funds are not run by experts. They're run by people that have recently graduated college and passed a series of exams that allow them to legally uh, conduct the business of the fund. They work for an expert that technically runs the fund but doesn't really run the fund because running a mutual fund is so daggone boring and so daggone pointless um, that the real expert can't afford to spend his time running the fund. So he's out running either funds for rich people or running the business's investments as a whole. Why? Because mutual funds do not diversify your money. They lock your money into a market segment. So if you go into a mid-cap mutual fund, the guy running that fund can only buy stocks in mid-cap companies. And if the stock market is about to take a dump like it was in June, July, August of 2008, that expert can't sell off all the shares of stock, put it into cash, and wait and buy it back in. He's legally not allowed to do so. He has to sit there and take it on the chin. And when everybody in his fund starts panicking, all he can do is sell off shares and pay out the, the sell orders that come in from his shareholders. That's it. And that drives the price of the fund down, down, down. He has to sit there and take it on the chin and wait for the market to cycle over and start ramping back up and money to start flowing back into his fund. That's how mutual funds are run today. 
Does that mean you never invest in mutual funds? No, but it sure as hell means you don't go buy a good mid-cap, small-cap, large-cap, and uh, cash value fund. You don't go buy four different mutual funds and consider yourself diversified. Now you're in the four different areas of one class of asset, paper stock. And if the market takes it on the chin, you take it on the chin too. That's just the way that it is. That's what happens when you're 100% of mutual funds. So I don't hate mutual funds, but I'm telling you, you are as diversified buying five quality stocks that are all large cap stocks as you are buying a mutual fund invested in a hundred different, you know, large cap stocks. In fact, sometimes you're better off with five really quality stocks than a hundred stocks. And the rules are, I can't go deep into this thing. Just know that when you throw your money into a mutual fund, you don't have this, like, top-notch expert sitting on Madison Avenue, trading stock every day, moving money around, timing the market, doing all the stuff you should be doing, but don't know how because he spends his time doing it. You don't have people that are out there going to work for these companies first to see what their quality is like before they invest in it. You have a guy that's a few years out of grad school with a couple exams under his belt, under the tutelage of a guy that he's going to go work alongside of someday instead of underneath, who's not yet an expert, buying stock in in companies based on a, a formula that you could run for yourself. I'm not saying you should run it for yourself. Just know the reality behind it and know that you're not diversified like your advisor told you because you're in three different mutual funds. You're completely undiversified, you're totally exposed, and you're totally at risk. This is why you have to really diversify into things like real property, into things like income-producing assets, into things like gold and silver, and not all of your money into any one place. But we'll get to that now. The next slide. This usually comes from the the the, uh, the alternative sources of information, and it takes the form of due to blank, put all your money into blank. What the hell is a blank? It's a blank. Fill in the blank. Due to the fact that the market is about to totally crash, put all your money into gold. Due to the fact that the stock market has completely dropped to the bottom and begun to recover, put all your money into growth stocks. All right, it sound familiar? Due to the fact that the real estate market is currently on its back, put all your money into real estate, buy low, sell high. Due to blank, put all of your money, 100% of your money, into blank. Terrible idea. That is summed up in so many old parables and phrases that it's unbelievable. The one that I think of most is, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's, that's just ancient wisdom, folks. And then we turn around and completely ignore it. There is never a time to put all your money into any one thing. Not even cash. Not even cash. Maybe short term with cash. Maybe if you just don't know what's going to happen and you're invested in a whole bunch of things and you just know bad times are ahead, maybe you pull out, wait to see what happens, and then make a decision. It's about the only way I would even go 100% cash. And I did it with a majority of my investments um, last summer. And then I kind of figured out where to put the money back to. But, I mean, you really, you, you cannot ever go into one class of investment and think that it's a good idea. It's always a bad idea. It's always a terrible idea. Don't do it. Don't believe it. And when you hear it from somebody, odds are they or someone paying them are selling the very thing they're saying to put all of your money into. It's a perfect mark of a false profit. Do not fall it fall for it. Do not fall into it. Do not do it. Never put all of your eggs in one basket. Never put all of your assets into one class. It is a terrible idea. Last one. This is one when I tell you what the lie is, you're going to go, how the hell is that wrong? It's And it is. Always look for the job that pays you the most money. Find the job that pays you best. That's the job for you. I mean, you're going to work anyway, so you might as well. If, if Harry's Widgets pays you more than Bob's Widgets, go work for Harry's Widgets. There are so many things wrong with this. From a quality of life standpoint alone. You know, if, if one is a longer hours, a rougher commute, harder on your family, and the pay's not that much different, I don't even have to go any further, do I? If I do, I don't know what else to tell you. 
But the real tragedy here is that people today take jobs for a wage. The wage is the way that you pay for your bills while you're working there. It's not why you should have the job in the first place. You're thinking, Jack, if they didn't pay me, I wouldn't show up. I mean, what the hell are you talking about, right? Of course I work for money. Oh, this, it just, it bugs me. Because we've been so lulled into this. Do you know what people used to take jobs for? To learn. That's why we had an apprentice system. That's why a young boy would go to work for a master clockmaker. It would work for 10 years for a relatively low wage. But in 10 years, he became a master himself. And could go set up his own store or help his, his, his teacher expand his business. Especially if that teacher turned out to be his father. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. But people took jobs for what they could learn. I've taken jobs for what I could learn. If I followed this advice, back when I left Fluke Networks and came back to Texas, I would have taken a job going back on the road, selling again. As soon as it was heard that I was on the market and moving back to Texas, I had every industry contact that I had calling me up. Hey, Jack, uh, what are you going to do now? I, I'm not sure yet. Uh, you know what? Vertex hiring. They need a they need a national manager. Another guy calls me. Panduit's hiring. They they need a Southwest regional man. You could live where you're at. I mean, they're looking for a guy. You're perfect for it. I had people just begging me. Let me let me let me make an introduction for you because I had so many contacts because I'd been in the industry so long because I had a great reputation. All of these jobs paid more than the one I just left. The industry was doing great. Good talent was hard to find, and I was available. You know what I did? I took a job making $45,000 a year. Coming off a year that I made over 130. Did I take the job that would pay the best? No, I took the job that was going to surround me with people that knew the Internet because I had a passion for it. And because of that, three years later, I founded my own company. Three years after founding, founding that company, I've completely transitioned it into kind of an automated system that works with small-time entrepreneurs, and I've moved myself into a position where in another couple weeks, I'll be doing this show 100% full-time. Because I didn't take the job that paid best. I took the job that taught me the skills that I needed to refine the things that I already knew so that I could create what I wanted in my life. I took a job for an education, even though I could get a very, very, very well-paying job. This is not to pump myself up. It's to tell you I know what I'm talking about. I know where I speak, and I've made the sacrifice that I'm telling you you might have to make now. I did it. You can, too. You know, most people in my position would have moved back down here to Texas. They would have took the profit they made out of the house up there. They would have bought one of these great big... I mean, you would be un, you would not believe what kind of house you could buy for $325,000 in the Dallas, Texas area. You wouldn't believe it if you compared it to what that would buy you up in the Northeast. You can buy a house for three and a quarter in the Dallas area that you'll pay over a million dollars for in the Northeast. I would have come back down here, found that big six-figure job, bought that $325,000 house, contributed putting 15% into my uh, 401k if I followed the formula, right? And now I would still be away from my family every day. My son's 20. I didn't get to see all of us growing up. But you know what? I got to be part of it for the last six years. I wouldn't trade that back for anything. And I ended up with more financially as well because I was following my passion instead of somebody else's formula. And as I wrap up today, that's what I always try to convey to you. You cannot, you absolutely cannot follow my formula or anybody else's formula. And all of these stock pieces of advice, these good solid financial pieces of advice, this one-size-fits-all bullshit won't work for you as the standalone. You'll have to go out and pick and choose which ones fit your life under its current circumstances. And you'll have to build your own program. And you'll have to build your own plan. Something that you 100% believe in. If you don't do that, it won't work. Even when you disagree with me, fine. Take the parts you do agree with and incorporate them into your life. Build your own plan. I hope you disagree with me. I hope you've disagreed with me at least once today. If you haven't, you're not thinking. Or you've just been through the exact same life experiences. You could agree with me in your thinking, and that just means that you and I have had very similar lives. But if we've had different lives, you better have different opinions. 
And at some point you may come to the same opinions I do. And at some point I may change my opinions and come to the same conclusions that you do. Remember, I reserve the right to be wrong on this show. But when it comes to these fundamentals, these things I've talked about today, I'm telling you, not that they're wrong, but they're not one-size-fits-all solutions to problems. And following them that way is a great way to end up a 55-year-old man being downsized, with not enough money to cover his bills, with a great big retirement account you can't touch for another 5 to 10 years and working as a night watchman, or worse, working for a 22-year-old young punk like Jack Spierko used to be. And I might seem arrogant today on some things. I might seem a little bit um, over the top on some things. But at 22, I almost couldn't stand myself. I was one of the most arrogant, young, little sons of bitches you've ever met in your life. I thought I knew everything. And I drove people hard, really hard, including those 55-year-old men before I learned to respect them. I pushed them to work hard. And for some reason, for some reason, they worked hard for me. I really don't know why. But I wish for each one of them that I had had the chance to talk to them when they were 35, when I was 35. And I wish for each one of them that they had lived their life just a little bit different so they never had to go work for that young punk. And at 55, they could have been semi-retired and have been happy about it. Instead of working for a menial wage, well under their capabilities. And I'm telling you, these formulas set us up for that. And it's only going to get more true. As technology advances faster and faster, and young people learn this stuff quicker than old people, and it gets easier and easier to outsource and be flexible, And as the emerging technologies become the technologies of choice, it's going to become harder and harder for people to keep jobs into their 50s and 60s. And that means that we need to start planning to retire with prepping as our form of retirement in our 50s and younger. To develop businesses that are easy to run, have substantial cash flows, And let us live the life we want because we've set up a very uh, sustainable lifestyle. A lifestyle that doesn't require a lot of money. So that anything we make beyond that becomes an additional uh, asset for us. Through either buying other things or simply saving and investing. And it is possible. And everybody can do it. And the people who tell you they can't do it are the ones who tell you to follow these seven little pieces of advice. And what I'm telling you to do today is figure out which one of the rules don't really work for you and make sure you start breaking them. And some of you parents that have students that are coming up in the college age, um, if college is right for that kid, push them into college. If college is not right for that kid, don't push them. Don't send them there. If they have any idea what they want to do, help them embrace what they want, what they really want to become. Don't tell them they can't because you'd be surprised at what kids can do when we tell them, yeah, you can. Let me help you do it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler. It really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.